Let me invite you to take your Bible and open to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. In the wisdom of God, God has given us four different snapshots of the life of Jesus Christ. That's, there's four Gospels. And, and all the four Gospels are, are a bit different. They, they come from a, a little bit different perspectives. And, and each of them, just like different authors, have different emphases. One of the emphases you find in the Gospel of Matthew is... Matthew records a lot of the direct teaching of Jesus. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount. You've got three chapters, essentially, of direct teaching from Jesus. Matthew 24 and 25, right, essentially, a few days before Jesus is crucified, you've got a large block of, essentially, Jesus preaching and teaching to his disciples. And that's, that's what we're concluding today. Matthew and 24 and 25 go together as this large sermon this block of teaching from Jesus to his followers, essentially showing them that God is going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem and that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and bring final judgment. So for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, 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 the call from Jesus is for us to be prepared, to be prepared, to be ready for his return because of what is going to happen at his return, which we're going to focus on today. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, we see Jesus conclude his epic sermon near the end of his life. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus in his teaching is not just giving us information to fill our heads. The teachings of Jesus Christ and, and all of the Bible not, is not just merely information for us to ponder or to think about. No, rather, Jesus' teaching is intended to change our life and to alter the way we think about life 
and to alter the course of our life. Keep in mind, Jesus in this case is talking to his followers. This sermon, this block of teaching is, a direct, is directed to the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And essentially what he's been doing here at the end of this teaching is he's trying to prepare us. He's trying to prepare us for his return. If you go back to chapter 24, let me show you this. He's been talking about his coming, his glorious coming. Look at 24 and verse 44. Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. There the teaching is, you don't know when I'm coming, therefore you need to always be ready. Chapter 25 begins with a parable essentially of five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. The wise were prepared for the, the groom's coming and he welcomes them into the wedding feast. The foolish were unprepared and they were shut out from his presence. And then the, the parable of the talents where essentially you have two faithful servants and one unfaithful servant. Look at, look at what Jesus says to the faithful. This is what we all want to hear. Matthew 25 in verse 21, the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But notice what he says to the wicked and lazy servant in verse 30 of chapter 25. Now, this is, this is the way our study this morning is introduced. So look at how Jesus introduces our study. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point here is we don't want that. We don't want to go to that place. Therefore, Jesus in preparing us gives this final teaching. And he says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So first of all, we need to see the king's separation. We need to see the king's separation. Throughout this passage, Jesus is referred to as the king. And notice here, when he comes, the Son of Man, this one who has all authority, when he comes in his glory, He's coming with the weight and power and majesty of God himself. And when he comes, look at what he's going to do. He's going to sit on his glorious throne. He's coming with angels who are divine messengers that, that are in the presence of God and do the bidding of God. He's coming with them. And he's going to sit on his glorious throne. He is a king. And his throne is glorious. And at this time, there will be a, a great separation. There will be a great division. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Notice all nations will be there. Most people view this as some kind of a universal judgment of all people. And at that judgment, at that separation that the king will bring about, He's going to separate them, and the analogy here is like a shepherd. This is kind of hard for us to understand because I'm assuming none of us in here are shepherds, and most of us probably have not seen a shepherd work. From my reading, my understanding is that oftentimes in the ancient world, herds of sheep would often mingle with other herds, oftentimes with goats. But when the shepherd at the evening would call the sheep, there would just be this incredible separation. And the sheep would come out from the midst of the goats, and they would be all together around the shepherd. That's the imagery Jesus uses here to liken this division that the king is going to bring about at his glorious return. 
It's going to be a separation like that. There are two distinct groups. What we're going to focus on most this morning is what he says to the sheep. There's a lengthy description here. In fact, the, the longest description here is of the sheep and particularly how they lived. What characterizes their life? So now let's see. Let's see how the sheep are described. Let's see how the sheep are described. Verse 33, he will place the sheep on his right. So on the right is the place of honor. But the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, similar to the good and faithful servant. This is what we want to hear. He will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Enter, inherit the, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He invites them to come. So what we, this is what the, we want to hear the king say. Come, come, you who are blessed by my father. The word blessed here is a reference to receiving favor and kindness from another. Receiving kindness from another. They've received kindness from God. He says, inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom. The reason you inherit something is because of your relationship to the owner. You're related to the father. That's the reason for the inheritance. And notice the kingdom is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That this has been God's plan all along. He has a kingdom. And notice that kingdom has been prepared before the world even began. Which is quite mind-blowing. The very least, it shows you God has a plan and a purpose for his people. It's astounding. If you read in the book of Revelation, one of the things you'll find is a very clear distinction between those who reject Jesus and those who follow Jesus. The book of Revelation emphasizes this. And on those who reject Jesus in Revelation, judgment is coming. In fact, they're, they're described as those who follow the devil. Those who follow Jesus in the book of Revelation suffer persecution, but those that are faithful to the end are saved. One of the things the book of Revelation says about those that believe in Jesus, two times it says that their names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Amazing. We see God's perspective, his plan for his people. But notice, their life is characterized in this text. This is not a text on how you can be saved. This is a text on, this is how my faithful servants live. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Look what he says. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These are all acts of kindness. These are all act, good works, if you will. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And again, the surprise here is doing this for the Lord Jesus. I mean, obviously, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus and he's hungry, you're going to help him. Obviously, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus is in need, you're going to help Jesus. And, and so there's a bit of a surprise here, it seems, on the side of the righteous or the sheep. When did this happen? When did we see you like this, Lord? We don't recall this. And he clarifies it in verse 39. When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? The, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That the life of the followers of Jesus, the life of those that inherit the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world, is characterized by caring for the needs of brothers. 
brothers. Now, who are the brothers? Who are the least of these my brothers? Well, brothers are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to Matthew 12, you can see this. There's lots of scriptures that point this out, but let me just give you one from the gospel we're studying. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 48. The question is, who are brothers? Matthew 12, 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And friends, that's what, that's what characterizes the church. The family of God, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who do his will, who believe in him, who are his people. And that's characterized, whether it be mothers, sisters, brothers, male, female, whatever, the followers of Jesus Christ are his brothers. But notice the, the point here, the, the emphasis here was on care and concern. This, this is what marks out the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, this kind of love, this kind of concern for brothers. And not only that, as you did it to the least of these, we'll talk about that just in a minute, you did it to me. Jesus recognizes good works done to needy brothers as if they are good works done to him personally. This is similar to when Saul, Paul the Apostle, was on that road to Damascus before he was converted. He was actually on the road to persecute Christians. And Jesus appears to him. I believe the last person Jesus ever appeared to. Here is Paul the Apostle and calls him in to be an apostle. And one of the things Jesus says to him is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul was throwing Christians into prison. Saul was ravaging the church. He was persecuting Christians. But Jesus looks at it as an attack on my people is an attack on me personally. Likewise, we see in this text, care and concern and love and good works expressed toward his brothers are as care and concern and good works and love expressed to him which is a call for how we should live, particularly how we should treat one another. Obviously, friends, we know the Lord Jesus is very intent on teaching us how we should treat one another. I mean, this is, this is part of the greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is the, the, the teaching that resonates through the New Testament for the, the Christian to love one another, to treat each other with kindness, to welcome one another. That's why the, that's why the church should be, we want to welcome believers. We want to see believers. We want to see everybody come because we want everybody to hear the word of God. But we certainly are required by God to love and care for one another as believers in the church. And Jesus recognizes this as care for him. What we see here is something we see taught throughout the Bible. The reality, the substance of our faith is vindicated by how we live. The faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, following Jesus, is not merely just a verbal confession that anybody can make. Following the Lord Jesus Christ results in works, results in good works. This is the place of good works in the Christian life, and they are essential. They vindicate the reality of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's utterly, it's utterly inconsistent to say, I follow Jesus Christ, but then not love his people. That I follow Jesus Christ and then have no concern for his people, which is quite prominent in our day. Many people want to, a mere confession and then want no responsibilities to the Lord of the church. Amazing. Utterly inconsistent. Especially in the face of a text like this which shows you the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are 
direly concerned for one another's welfare and concern. We take care of one another. Very quickly, this text has been misused, as many are, to support something that historically has been called the social gospel. And, and, And this is still around today. This is a heresy that's really just a few hundred years old was very prominent in the 1900s, has totally infected some of the Protestant churches in America. It's a a heresy that's infected churches that once stood for the gospel. And this idea is the gospel is really about just helping people. That essentially the gospel is feeding the hungry, taking care of the sick, and, and essentially doing the things that Jesus says here. That is an error. That is not how you're saved. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus and his death on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, that he's Lord over all. And it's good news because anybody who trusts Jesus will be saved. That's good news because everybody's condemned before a holy God. But anyone who trusts Jesus and believes in him will be saved. And then they're filled with the, the power of the Spirit of God and unleashed upon the world to do good works. And the good works that they do, like caring for the hurting and feeding the hungry, those are good works done in the power of God's Spirit, focusing first and foremost on God's people, in this text at least. It's not about the gospel being feed the sick and feed the hungry. Those are good works. Those are good things to do. Certainly, we're not against being merciful or doing those things. Just don't confuse those as the means of being saved. So, friends, what are we doing as Christians? as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. What are we doing to help brothers in need? Notice the specificity of Jesus as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers. He's talking about his followers. What are we doing for one another? What are we doing for other believers in need? John, John the apostle focuses on this probably more than any of the other authors of scripture. Look at what he says in 1 John. This is one of the verses the Awana kids memorized. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Some of these kids have this verse memorized. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, look at the commitment brothers in the church have toward one another. We're willing to lay down our life for each other. That is, that is the, 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 the kind of love Jesus expects in the church. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods, I'm assuming that's all of us in this room. Maybe not. Certainly most of us. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? So Again, here's the test of love. Just like faith. Anybody can say, I love you. But if we have the world's goods and see a need... Here the problem would be if you see the need and then close your heart. That's what what John is identifying here. We, We should not do that. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So it's a good challenge for us to think about how we're loving brothers, particularly and especially the least of these, those in need. How can we do that? How are we doing that? Because... We want to receive the Lord's commendation. Well, next we need to see how the goats are described or or the unrighteous. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart, rather than come, leave. 
depart. The century of the king says, get out of my presence. And look what he calls them, cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice this, this place of fire, eternal fire, is prepared for the devil. The devil, that rebel against God. His rebellion was so severe that he is sentenced to eternal torment. But notice it's not only him, sadly. It's those who don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's eternal fire. We'll come back to that in a minute. He he explains it essentially. You didn't live out the faith. You didn't live out the faith. You didn't help the needy. You didn't clothe those in need. You didn't visit those in prison. Verse 44, notice they're surprised as well. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in in prison and did not minister to you? And Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. That there needs to be a great concern and love for the least of these. That's how the goats are described. And then the sobering final statement of final separation. Look at verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, uh, I'm sorry, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's the end of the sermon. (laughs) It's kind of like the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He, you know, uh, great was the fall of it. That's how Jesus ends sermons in Matthew. They will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. Jesus paints a a grim picture, a a sobering picture of a final separation. He's coming to separate. He's coming to divide. As a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And this this is the ultimate separation here. These, that's the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment. One of the things the scripture is clear on is the nature of the last state of unbelievers. The duration of the punishment, those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ will endure. This is frightening, sobering stuff. Probably as sobering as the Bible gets. But this is something the scripture consistently teaches, as you see it here. Notice here in this text, let's start with this one. They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Very clear, two two different groups, the unrighteous and the righteous. But notice eternal punishment and eternal life. The same word is used to describe both. And what you find oftentimes in our day is many are willing to accept eternal life. This idea, this teaching about heaven in the presence of God, surely that's eternal. But there's been a general trend throughout history and just become more pronounced in in recent days to reject the fact that punishment is eternal. But notice here this text, both are described with the exact same word. And I would just say you can't have eternal life if you don't also recognize the eternality of punishment. This is just the teaching of the Bible. And friends, my, my job is just to tell you what the Bible says. Look at Matthew 3. This is John the Baptist. He's preaching about the coming of Jesus and what Jesus will do. Look at the way John the Baptist describes Jesus' teaching. Matthew 3.12. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There the imagery is wheat and chaff. And notice, notice what he's going to do with the chaff. He's going to burn it with unquenchable fire. Look at Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Notice there how Jesus describes hell. Unquenchable fire. Friends, this is the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible. Conscience, conscious, eternal torment. The rich man in the gospel of Luke who goes to hell says that he wants to find relief from this torment. Tragic. Frightening. And friends, so many people now in our day and time, now we're talking about Christians, so-called Christians. You need to understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about unbelievers. I mean, we expect non-believers to reject hell, even though fascinating some of them believe in it. But you're, you, what we have in, in, our, in 2018 is you have people, you have Baptists, let alone a myriad of other so-called Christians, that are trying to adjust this biblical teaching. And we can all see why. This is so hard. I mean, just trying to fathom eternity is, is in one sense incomprehensible to our finite minds. This is what the Bible presents about God. But people are adjusting this, and essentially they're redefining the eternal state of unbelievers. And you know why? Because an idea of eternal punishment does not fit their thinking or what they want or what they think is right. That's, that's usually the reason. And so what ends up happening is they judge God. They judge God. And they say any kind of, any kind of eternal punishment is wrong. I know God is not wrong, therefore that can't be God. Friends, I'll say, you must allow God to define himself. This is one of the helpful things Martin Luther said in his day, when essentially the church was, had so many traditions apart from the Bible. He said, God does not have a wax nose. And that imagery meant, he's not a mask that you can mold and shape any way you want him to, make, to look. You can't make God look the way you want him to look. He, he reveals himself, friends, and you need to accept him and take him for how he reveals himself. And part of the way he reveals himself is this frightening, sobering, harrowing reality. We get a few years here on earth, and the punishment is eternal for, for rejecting his son. That's pretty severe, isn't it? Yes, it is severe to reject the son of God. It is utterly, incredibly severe to reject the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life so that you could be saved and be part of the kingdom of God. You see, friends... The crime and the sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came and died by God's command. To reject him is the highest crime. To not believe in him calls for this kind of severe penalty. So we cannot readjust or redefine God to fit our propensities or proclivities as if we're good and can define what is right for him. Or what often and is more common in our day what is happening is people will use one true biblical teaching to justify the rejection of another biblical teaching 
And this is where it gets really tricky. This is where you've got to think. And you've got to be discerning. For instance, most commonly in our day, people recognize God is love, which is true. What does that mean? Well, see, friends, the problem is people define God's love the way they want it to be. And it is true that God is love. And essentially, they, because God is love, they'll reject these other teachings about God, like the fact that he would consign people to eternal punishment, which Jesus says he does. They'll say, because God is love, that can't happen. But see, what happens is this neglects the other realities of God's holiness and justice. Friends, do you understand about God that God requires perfection because he's perfect? Please make no mistake, God requires perfection. He requires it. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you know what you, the sane person does when they hear those requirements? Well, I can't do that. I'm not that. And that's exactly right. And that's why the gospel is good news. Because none of us are that. And no person other than the Lord Jesus Christ is that. And that's why we're all sinners condemned before a holy God. But Jesus, the good news is, Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. And those who trust in Jesus will be part of his kingdom. And those who trust in Jesus live out his word and do what he says and live for him. And friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And we want you all to believe that, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in him. That's what we call you to do. It's good to preach the gospel every time we get to preach and we call you to trust Jesus, to turn from your sin, to turn to Jesus Christ. He, he invites, Jesus in his teaching, he invites people to come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We all carry these burdens through life. Jesus says to come to him. You come to him first and foremost. The greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins, and he's the only one who can do that, and he will do it. That's the good news. Though our sins are red like scarlet, he'll make them white as wool. You should come to him, and he will forgive you, and you are welcomed into his kingdom, and you get brothers and sisters, a whole room full of them, here. And then not only here, all over the world, brothers and sisters. Right? What, what you gain in family increases exponentially through Christ. And that's what he's talking about here in this text, how we treat one another. So let's be advised to do that as well. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray we'd be sobered by these realities. And God, that we'd see the separation that's going to come because of the glorious king at his coming. And we'd see the way the sheep, the righteous, and the goats, the unrighteous, are characterized. And Lord, our earnest desire is to be part of your kingdom. Therefore, God, I pray that we would be prepared and be recognizing the emphasis here to care for one another, to love one another. especially, Lord, the least of these, those that are in great need. Brothers and sisters who have needs, Lord, help us not to turn a blind eye, but help us to be willing and ready to meet needs and to help those who need help. God, I just pray that we'd be sobered by the reality of eternal punishment. God, we don't want to see any of our friends or family members consigned to that. God, we want them to believe in Christ. So Lord, give us boldness to go to them and to, to proclaim to them the good news by which they can be saved. And God, we pray they would. 
I pray the reality of hell would sober many. They'd recognize the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they'd tremble in fear, and all of us, God, would tremble in fear today as we sing. Before the one who has power and authority to cast body and soul into hell. The Lord, our faith would be in Christ, and that he is our hope to deliver us from that place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.